You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. So, time to begin the first session. The new climate reality check. What's the emergency? And it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you an award-winning Australian journalist, author, uh, and educator at the University of Melbourne Centre for Advancing Journalism. She has filed news and features from assignments across sub-Saharan Africa, Papua New Guinea, rural and remote Australia, and other parts of the world, many of them telling stories of climate research and the unfolding impacts of the climate emergency. Please welcome Joe Chandler. Welcome to everybody. Uh, In case you forgot, it's Valentine's Day. And nothing says I love you like saving a planet in distress. I think we need a new hashtag today in honour of the uh, Valentine's Day uh, rhythm with this. Make love not emissions. (laughs) Back in 2008, Fred Pearce, who's one of my favourite climate writers and one whose dedicated coverage of the climate story goes back for decades, wrote about climate tipping points. Nature is fragile, environmentalists often tell us, but the truth is far more worrying. Nature is strong and packs a serious counterpunch. Global warming will very probably unleash unstoppable planetary forces. They will not be gradual. The history of our planet's climate shows that it, uh, that it does not do gradual change. Under pressure, whether from sunspots or orbital wobbles or the depredations of humans, it lurches virtually overnight. I've written about, a lot about climate tipping points over the past 15 years, and while they always looked terrifying up close, they also seemed vaguely remote. Not anymore. This week, a Brazilian researcher in Antarctica recorded a temperature of 20.75 degrees. If confirmed, it's the hottest temperature ever measured on the continent. The previous record was last week. A couple of days ago, the BBC reported on preliminary findings of a decade-long study of greenhouse gases over the Amazon basin, which suggests that the Amazon rainforest, a vital carbon sink, um, is slow and which we rely on to slow the pace of global warming may be turning into a carbon source faster than previously thought. Two weeks ago, we learned that scientists have found evidence of what has long been suspected, that there's a pool of warm water beneath the monster Thwaites Glacier, which on its own has the potential to unleash over three metres of sea level rise. Uh, understating, I guess, but direct, said one of the scientists, this is really, really bad. Last year, we learned that the Arctic permafrost is thawing at much more, uh, much more quickly than the models have predicted, keeping in mind that soils in the permafrost region hold twice as much carbon as the atmosphere does. Ocean heat waves have led to mass coral bleaching and the loss of half the shallow water corals of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. So thinking again about tipping points, over the past few months, I've been thinking about where they exist, not just biological, atmospheric, but personal. What will it take to shift us into a new state, the tipping point politically, emotionally, economically, industrially, socially, as well as the biosphere limits that we are pushing beyond breaking point? 
To get us moving into contemplating those questions and without any further delay, can I introduce to you one of the superstars of climate science and climate communication, Michael the Hockey Stick Man, atmospheric scientist and director of the Earth System Science Centre at Penn State University. He's best known internationally as the lead researcher of that landmark 1998 paper in which he and his colleagues reconstructed global temperatures going back 500 years, producing that now infamous sideways hockey stick-like graph. But perhaps he's most famous here for his timely caution to Jim Molan that to keep one's mind open uh, did present a very real risk of one's brains falling out. Thanks very much for that kind introduction, Joe, and uh, thanks uh, to all you. Good day, mates. Uh, uh, I'm going to talk about the climate emergency that we all uh, see playing out. Uh, the title says, What's the Emergency? The good news is that you don't have to use your imagination anymore to answer that question. The bad news is you don't need to use your imagination anymore to answer that question. Uh, we see it playing out. Um, let me talk a little bit, and I'm going to go through this a little more quickly than I normally would because we're running uh, behind here. Uh, let's start out with the projections. You know, if you're a contrarian and, you know, you don't trust climate scientists like myself, the climate models that we use to predict the future, I would say, okay, well, let's see what ExxonMobil uh, predicted. Back in 1982, this is from an internal ExxonMobil report that was ultimately leaked, um, and it shows a projection, and I won't go through all the details, uh, but basically what it's showing you is that ExxonMobil's own scientists secretly, internally, predicted almost perfectly both the rise in carbon dioxide concentrations that would occur up to now, and the warming that would result from that. Now, it's an amazing prediction when you think about it, because it required them to not only know what other climate scientists, independent scientists knew, the, the warming impact of greenhouse gases, but it represented their confidence that their efforts, that their disinformation campaign and their lobbying would keep us on a course where carbon dioxide concentrations would rise to nearly 415 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere, the highest level that the Earth has seen in millions of years. So if you don't believe climate scientists like myself, uh, ExxonMobil's own scientists predicted quite well where we would be today uh, as under an assumption of uh, uh, inaction on climate and the warming that would result. Um, and, of course, we have uh, more sophisticated models today that tell us that we can keep warming below a degree and a half Celsius uh, if we dramatically uh, lower our carbon emissions. Uh, but if we continue with business as usual, we're talking for maybe possibly as much as five degrees Celsius warming of the planet by the end of the century. Now, We've all heard this, um, you know, talking point, uh, 12 years to limit climate change. What the underlying uh, science from the IPCC shows is that we need to bring our carbon emissions down by a factor of two within what is now the next 10 years, because it's two years later. The next 10 years, carbon emissions down by a factor of two if we're going to avert a degree and a half warming of the planet. Uh, 
which some would say constitutes dangerous climate change. Um, we uh, published an article uh, a few years ago that showed that the IPCC here, by the way, is being extremely conservative, reticent. They're actually overstating how much carbon we have left to burn uh, if we are to avert warming the planet more than a degree and a half. The contrarians like to dismiss the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, as some activist organization, but in fact it's very conservative. Um, their reports are basically the lowest common denominator uh, about what thousands of scientists are able to agree upon, and, and by their nature they tend to be very understated, and they're probably overstating, therefore, the amount of carbon we have left to burn if we're going to uh, prevent warming of a catastrophic one and a degree, one and a half degree. Um, and it's a point that I made in a recent interview, um, the impacts of climate change. Again, we don't need to use our imagination anymore. They are playing out in real time. In the northern hemisphere, from the Amazon to the Arctic, we saw wildfires breaking out uh, last summer. We've seen unprecedented heat and unprecedented uh, drought in uh, various parts of uh, Europe and the United States and North America. January 2020 is the hottest month on record globally. Um, the warming continues unabated, and it will continue as long as we continue to emit carbon into the atmosphere. Here in Australia, of course, in the last year, you've seen you know, the hottest month on record for you. Unprecedented floods, as we know. Unprecedented drought. Unprecedented bushfires that started early unprecedented heat, as we already heard, the hottest day that Australia has ever recorded uh, since we've been keeping records. Um, I arrived here in mid-December. Uh, two years ago, I planned to do a sabbatical here uh, up in Sydney, working with some scientists at UNSW, trying to understand the linkages between climate change and extreme weather events in Australia. I planned that sabbatical out two years ago. I arrived in mid-December, of course, to see it playing out in real time. Um, and what I witnessed uh, was, um, you know, uh, beds were literally burning. Um, the blue skies, blue skies weren't apparent when I uh, visited the Blue Mountains. Instead, they were filled with brown smoke and I wrote about my experiences. Um, look, we've already heard uh, the reference to the Garneau report. Back in 2008, um, Ross Garneau predicted that by 2020, we would see a noticeable increase in the length of the fire season and the intensity of the fires, and we are seeing it. So I hate to say we told you so, Australian government, but we told you so. We told you what would happen if we didn't act, and now it's happening. Unfortunately, our predictions are coming true. That's the last thing you want to see happen as a climate scientist. So instead of doing research, I've mostly been spending my time trying to provide context for understanding what Australia is witnessing here. Um, and I did have an interesting experience on Q&A. Um, with uh, Jim Bolin, um, and, 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 and the quote is, uh, you know, he kept on saying he's trying to keep an open mind, you know, maybe the scientists are right, maybe the fossil fuel uh, 
you know, propagandists are right. Who knows? I'm trying to keep an open mind. And he repeated that, so I had no choice but to use a quote that Carl Sagan famously used, and it goes farther back than him. It's great to have an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. Um, it was nice. It was nice to have a national audience uh, for that. Um, a day earlier, I'd recorded a segment with 60 Minutes. Some of you might have caught it. It was a wonderful segment on the bushfires, and there were people from the um, firefighting community who provided uh, their insights and their expertise. I was there to talk about uh, the impact of climate change. You may recognize that other uh, fellow there, um, Barnaby, uh, Barnaby Joyce. Um, it was mentioned briefly earlier. Uh, what was remarkable was that Barnaby Joyce did not contest the human cause behind climate change or the connection between the bushfires and climate change. A remarkable concession on his part given that just weeks earlier he was dismissing it as the, the will of God. Um, uh, he did assert that the government is, is doing their due diligence in acting on the crisis and I did have to correct him there. Uh, the segment is uh, on YouTube in case you want to watch it. Um, and, and the point that I made uh, also was that, look, what we're seeing in Australia now, this is what one degree of warming gives you. Imagine what four. Imagine what four gives us. Um, that's not something that we want to see. It's not a future that we want to pursue. It's not the sort of world we want to leave behind for our children and grandchildren. And I won't go through the details because you've seen it all. You've seen the same photos. You've seen the pictures. You've read the stories. Um, the only thing that appeared, and I lived through those Sydney rains, so in the two months that I've been here, I've gone from unprecedented heat and drought and bushfires and smoke to record flooding. Um, I experienced all that in Coogee, uh, where I'm living right now. Um, I am witnessing the impacts of climate change in real time out my front door uh, here in Australia. Again, we've seen all the images. Um, the only thing that seems to be missing is the plague of locusts. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but it, it did in Africa, um, and, uh, and there is a climate connection there as well. You know, the impacts uh, that this is having, uh, we've already heard some discussion about this, um, whether it's agriculture, whether it's our water supply, whether it's our biodiversity, um, our, you know, uh, the treasured uh, animal species that are home, uh, that, that Australia's home to, uh, the die-off of fish, um, these aren't subtle impacts. Climate change is having dangerous impacts now. Dangerous climate change has arrived for Australia, and it's simply a matter of how dangerous we're willing to let it get. Some of that we see and feel right here in Australia, but some of it, as we heard alluded to, uh, uh, Joe alluded to in her comments, some of it is happening farther afield. Some of what we will feel here is happening in distant locations. Uh, we've seen record ocean warming. 90% of the heating is going into the ocean. Last year was the warmest year on record for the global oceans. That warm ocean is melting the ice shelves off Antarctica, destabilizing the ice shelves, destabilizing glaciers like the Thwaites Glacier, which is the linchpin for much of the West Ant Antarctic ice sheet. And so we heard you know, reference to the fact that uh, if Thwaites goes, and it now appears to be eroding because of that warming water from beneath, and this isn't something we predicted years ago. 
It's only something that we realized was happening when we saw it happen. So yes, there's uncertainty in the science. Um, yes, our models have been imperfect, but if anything, uh, we have erred on the side of underpredicting the changes, the rate and the magnitude of the changes. And there are surprises that are in store that are playing out, and we're seeing that uh, here in what appears to be the beginning of the collapse of the Thwaites Glacier. Now, if that collapses, that alone gives us about three meters. But since it's the linchpin for much of the West Antarctic ice sheet, um, that could give us uh, as much as, you know, potentially five meters ultimately of West Antarctic ice, another five meters from melting Greenland, um, ultimately we could be locking in as much as 10 meters, 30 feet of, of sea level rise. And the models have said it might take you know, decades or even centuries for that to happen, but everything we've learned over the past 10 years has told us that these things are playing out faster than we predicted. The real world is more dynamic than our models often portray them to be. And because of that, we tend to underestimate the rate at which these things can happen. So, and the melting of the, green, of the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheet is leading to the flooding of beaches and our coastlines here in Australia and around the rest of the world. Um, that's a climate change impact as well, the increased uh, erosion when these storms, like these east coast lows, like the one we saw um, in, uh, in, in, in Sydney, Coogee, where I live um, last week, um, when those storms occur, you get even more flooding because the storm surge is on top of uh, the rising tide of sea level rise. So there is great urgency in, you know, in acting on this problem. Um, but doom and gloom is not the prescription for success here. And increasingly, you encounter people who think it's too late to do anything about the problem, and because of that have decided, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I might as well worry about other things. That plays right into the agenda of fossil fuel interests and polluters and the inactivists who would happily see you give up in trying to change the system, in trying to uh, lobby for systemic changes. Um, so beware of how doom and gloom is now being used as a weapon by the climate change denial and delay lobby to basically suppress your enthusiasm for action. The point is, there is urgency, but there's also agency. Um, there is still time to act. If we can decarbonize our economy, if we can bring those carbon emissions down, um, if we can elect uh, leaders here in Australia who will be willing to do what's right for us rather than the bidding of the fossil fuel interests who fund their campaigns, if we can do that, then we can still turn this ship around. We know what the solution is. No Bill Gates, sorry, we don't need a miracle. The miracle already exists in the form of, you know, you don't have to tell Australia, sun, wind, geothermal, tidal, energy. We have the solution. It's simply a matter of policies that will incentivize the shift away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. Um, and, and that's underway anyways. Here in Australia, um, in this year alone, uh, Australia will add 3.6 gigawatts. It's a huge amount of power from, from solar and wind. The transition is happening already. The age of fossil fuels is ending. 
Here's the problem. Given prevailing market forces alone, it won't happen fast enough for us to avert catastrophic warming of the planet. That's why we need a price on carbon. Hey, Australia, you gave us one, and then Tony Abbott took it away. Um, we need a price on carbon. We need politicians who will support a price on carbon. We need incentives for renewable energy. We need to level the playing field so that non-carbon sources of energy can compete fairly. That's all we're asking for, because on a fair playing field, that transition will happen even faster. I do have optimism. I have optimism in part because of um, experiences like this, speaking to this room. I can feel the energy and, and the enthusiasm. Um, we recognize there's an emergency, but we recognize that we can do something about it. Uh, the, the youth climate movement, which has changed the conversation in a fundamental way. Uh, so, uh, actually, let me go back. Oh, this is one of my favorites. I don't want to skip past that. Greta Thunberg. The uh, leader of OPEC, this consortium of oil producers, um, declared her as the greatest threat that they face right now, which is amazing. And it's because of the moral clarity with which she speaks that cuts through all of the fog and disinformation and misinformation that they've tried to put out there. Um, the clarity of the voices of our children and, and, and grandchildren calling for action has changed the conversation. Now, here's the thing. It's given us a foot in the door, but we can't put this on the, the children. We have to take advantage of the foot in the door that they've provided us to now do what we're all doing in this room, declaring that we have an emergency, demanding accountability on the part of our policymakers, and demanding change now. Um, Joe spoke to this as well. There are the tipping points that we fear, the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet. That's, that's a tipping point phenomenon that really scares me, but they're the good tipping points. And right now, I am convinced that in Australia, we are going through a tipping point in the public consciousness, um, a, a collective recognition by the people that we have a problem, we need to do something about it, and even the climate change denying politicians are changing their messaging. They don't know what to do. Okay, maybe it's happening. We'll just adapt. Um, uh, I guess that means that we'll grow fins and gills and, uh, and, and be born with um, gas masks um, and have fireproof skin. Um, I'm not quite sure how we adapt to the sorts of changes that we will see if we don't act. Um, it's a way of changing the conversation, avoiding talking about the real solution, which is getting off fossil fuels, which is not doubling down on coal, which is not providing subsidies for coal, um, which is not leading the world in coal exports. Um, and building new coal mines at a time when we have to be bringing our carbon emissions down dramatically. Um, it's not a time for using accounting tricks to try to argue that, uh, you know, the government is, is doing its due diligence, um, uh, something that came up in that uh, 60 Minutes segment. Well, so we know the solution, um, and we know why we have to act. That's my daughter. Um, uh, we went to see the, the Great Barrier Reef when my family was with me for the first few weeks here in Australia. And there is still a future. There is still a future 
where we retain the beauty and wonder of this planet that we grew up with for our children and grandchildren, and that we retain a viable planet for future generations. That is still a possible future. We have a narrow window of opportunity to create that future, to ensure that future, but we can still do it. So yes, we do have an emergency on our hands. Our house is on fire, our planet is on fire, but the fire brigade has arrived and we know what we need to do and that's what this conference is really about. So I, I will uh, leave it there. Uh, thank you very much. very much, Michael, and God bless Greta. I think anybody who has ever parented a teenage daughter knows why OPEC should be very afraid. <laughs> um, our next presenter uh, is also no newcomer to this discussion. Uh, I think he wrote a book, Climate Code Red, The Case for Emergency Action, back in 2008. David Spratt is a local businessman, a climate policy analyst, and the research director of the Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration. He's collaborated with his breakthrough colleague and former oil, gas and coal industry executive Ian Dunlop in arguing that Australia's climate stance is inflicting damage on humanity. The pair were co-authors of the book What Lies Beneath, the underestimation of existential climate risk in 2018. Um, so can I invite to the stage David Spratt. Thank you. Amazing to see so many people here today. Um, since 2018, understanding of the climate emergency has exploded globally. Everybody's talking about it. Look at this room today. The Oxford Dictionary last year named the two words climate emergency their word of the year. And as we've heard already, more than 1,100 regional, national and local governments around the world have already declared a climate emergency. Understanding of the emergency and the existential risks that we uh, face have been driven by many factors, including those local government campaigns. Greta Thunberg's brutally direct language and the students' strike for climate movement and the advocacy of groups like the climate mobilisation in, in the United States, Extinction Rebellion and campaigns for Green New Deal. Recent polling from the Australia Institute finds a clear majority of Australians agree with the propositions that the nation is facing a climate emergency requiring emergency action and that in response, government should mobilise all the society like they did during world wars. And a recent essential poll found that 64%, two thirds of Australians support, and I quote, setting a zero carbon pollution target for 2030, unquote. These are, these are amazing polling results, given what happens in Canberra. 
turning recognition of the climate emergency into an emergency plan and mobilisation around the world is the only strategy that matches ambition to the scale of the problem. But what does this phrase, climate emergency, mean? In 2008, as Joe mentioned, Philip Sutton and I deployed the phrase in a book, Climate Code, where the case for emergency action. Seems a long time ago. Um, in that book, we described an emergency response as one in which there's immediate looming threat to life, health, property and the environment, that there is a probability of it simply becoming overwhelming, that the speed of response is crucial and that the crisis is the highest priority for the duration, that bipartisanship and effective leadership are generally the norm and all the resources necessary are applied to solve the problem. All of those things are exactly what we have done during the recent bushfire. So Professor Will Steffen says that climate should be, in his words, the primary target of policy and economics, with something more like a wartime footing to roll out the transformation at very fast rates. I think that's a great definition of what we're talking about. The first duty of a government is to protect the people, to safeguard them, their livelihoods, their well-being, their safety, their way of life. But what does protection mean when it comes to climate disruption? Should we aim to protect all people or just some, all of nature or just some? I do not see how we can adopt goals which would mean that ecosystems are destroyed, species become extinct and there is significant disruption to human society. This idea is important because we have just hit 1.2 degrees of global average warming so far. And this is already dangerous, as Mike said. Here are five examples. Three quarters by volume of the Arctic sea ice has already been lost and the Arctic ecosystem is fundamentally changed. One quarter of the ice on the Himalayas has already been lost, yet more than a billion people rely on meltwater for their very existence. We have crossed tipping points, as Mike mentioned, for the loss of large West Antarctic glaciers and the sea level rise of several metres. Three quarters of the Barrier Reef has been lost in the 30 years. At the present temperature, it's likely to bleach every three or four years, but recovery time is 10 to 15 years. This is a death spiral. And fifthly, already, some of the most densely populated regions of the world are suffering from high levels of water stress and it is expected that 1.8 billion people will be living in water scarce regions by 2025. So 1.5 is not a reasonable or safe goal. Climate change is already dangerous. That's why, as well as eliminating fossil fuel emissions, carbon drawdown is vital to help reduce carbon uh, greenhouse gas levels and to cool the temperature back to a safe level. But we have a short-term problem. 1.5 is just a decade away as a consequence of past emissions of what we have already done. There is no carbon budget left for 1.5 degrees and nothing short of short-term solar radiation management 
is going to keep us under 1.5, but such an approach has not yet been demonstrated to be of net environmental or social use. So that's one line of evidence for, climate, for the climate emergency. Climate change is already dangerous, 1.5 is close at hand. A second line of evidence is our climate history. The last time we had this level of emissions, of uh, carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere, 400 parts per million, three to four million years ago, the temperature was three degrees warmer than pre-industrial and sea levels were 25 metres higher. A third line of evidence comes from the Paris commitment from 2015. If the current commitments in Paris are not improved upon, we face warming of three degrees within our lifetime and up to five degrees, according to the World Meteorological Organization. Scientists say that four degrees is, and I quote, incompatible with the maintenance of human civilization and an organized community, is devastating to the majority of ecosystems and has a high probability of not being stable. National security analysts tell us that at three degrees, the international order between nations is likely to break down and the world will be characterised by the phrase outright chaos. And here is why. Because three degrees threatens to make large parts of the world uh, and their food growing lands uninhabitable. This includes, and we're seeing it in Australia, regions ruined by drought and desertification, areas too hot to live in year round and rising seas. On the 27th of November last year in the journal Nature, some leading scientists wrote, and I quote, we are in a climate emergency. This is an existential threat to civilization. An existential threat to civilization, that is to ordered societies, not to, to us as a species, not human extinction. But we are currently on a path that is um, a, a warming, it is an existential threat to uh, contemporary societies. We've already seen that in Syria. A fourth line of evidence is the proximity of tipping points. That is the passing of critical thresholds which result in step changes in the climate system that are irreversible on human timescales without Herculean human efforts. As one example, a recent paper in Nature uh, pointed to, and I'll quote here, biosphere tipping points which can trigger abrupt carbon release back to the atmosphere. Permafrost across the Arctic is beginning to irreversibly thaw and release carbon dioxide and methane. The boreal forest in the sub-Antarctic is increasingly vulnerable. And they went on. Other tipping points could be, lowered, could be triggered at low levels of warming. A cluster of abrupt shifts between 1.5 and 2 degrees." Unquote. A fifth line of evidence is along a similar line. Uh, I think the most downloaded paper in the history of, of climate science uh, uh, publishing, the Hothouse paper a year or so ago, where world-leading scientists said that system feedbacks and their mutual interactions could drive the climate to a point of no return so that further warming becomes self-sustaining. And they said this could happen at as low a temperature as two degrees. And yet, to stay below two degrees is not itself safe. And to stay below two degrees, global emissions would have to be more than cut in half 
in the next 10 years and much more for higher emitting countries like Australia. So the final line of evidence for the climate emergency is that those decarbonisation rates alone are 5 to 10 per cent a year, every year, for the total economy for the next 10 years, are unprecedented in economic history and reveal the climate emergency requires unprecedented action. This is an emergency because it requires all hands on deck, making climate, as Will Steffen said, the first priority of economics and politics, because winning now is now the same as losing. Greta Thunberg says, uh, I know, we just have to. This is above all an emergency and, and not just any emergency. This is the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. This is not something you can just like on Facebook. <laughs> professor John Schellenhuber, the Emeritus Professor, Director of the Potsdam Institute in, in Germany, uh, advisor to Angela Merkel, the EU, and to Pope Francis, says in very brutal terms, if we don't solve the climate crisis, we can forget about the rest. He goes on, if we continue down the present path, there is a very big risk that we will just end our civilization. The human species will somehow survive, but we will destroy almost everything we have built over the last 10,000 years, 2,000 years. In the, in the middle of the fires in January, uh, Mike Cannon Brooks, the founder and CEO of uh, Atlassian, tweeted, as we do these days, a hundred days to mobilise Australia's talent and the industry to fight a war and decarbonise our economy in a decade? Question mark. Now that would be true leadership. <laughs> so we have the economic capacity to address this climate crisis. We have many of the solutions at hand and we are good at research that can solve outstanding issues. This is not primarily an ec economic or a technical issue, it's a social and political one. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, David. Now we're going to throw straight to some of your questions now. We don't have a lot of time, but we really want to hear from you. Um, so I believe we've got a couple of questions from the audience uh, queued to go. So number one, is a 2050 target of zero emissions too late, asks Sam. Well, I'm happy to, to take a stab at that. Um, no, it's not, but it depends on what we do in the meantime. Uh, just talking about a 2050 target is a great way of kicking the can down the road if you really don't want to do something about this problem now. As I alluded... <laughs> and, and that's relevant. You might want to look, uh, Google uh, BP and, and see what they said the other day because uh, uh, they got quite a bit of press for um, coming out and saying that uh, they, they want to take their, uh, you know, uh, very seriously um, their... Uh, their the, 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 you know their, their role in um, in, in decarbonizing uh, the world, uh, but they talked about a 2050 target. As we saw, we need to bring our carbon emissions down by a factor of two within the next 
10 years if we have any hope of, of, again, averting warming the planet more than a catastrophic one and a half degrees. And so I would like to see BP talk about what they are doing right now to make sure that we all get off fossil fuels. They have to stop investing in new fossil fuel inf inf infrastructure. They have to stop funding organizations that are actually trying to block um, renewable energy, that are denying uh, the threat of climate change. Uh, so let's see their deeds rather than their words. Um, and that, that applies to any company that is engaging in you know, greenwash um, because they recognize, look, people understand there's a problem. They expect us to do something about it. We can't deny it anymore. And so instead what they're doing is they're using language that makes it sound like they're taking the problem seriously when in fact they are just kicking the can down the road. Thanks for the question, Sam. Um, this is a game that gets played all the time. If you look at the Paris Agreement and the 34 pages of, of document um, in which the words oil and coal and gas aren't mentioned once, but I think the word resilience is mentioned 54 times, um, you've got a problem. And the problem in that document was in order not to say that there had to be rapid and fast emissions, there were, there were pages on a technology that does not exist, which has not been proven, called BECS, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, and there was a myth in this document, and in the second half of the century, after 2050, this technology would solve all our problems, so we didn't have to do anything now. And I have to say, when in successive nights, or so the head of the Business Council, and then BP, on the television saying the same thing, I had a really bad sinking feeling, that this was the New Deal. You say 2050, which is so far away, people say, I'll be dead by then. But what does 2050 mean to them? It probably means business as usual for the next 10 or 15 years, then there'll be some techno fix and we go on with it. So I think when those sort of companies and institutions start talking about 2050, you know there's a new game in town. Let, let me just add, there is one, there is one techno fix that actually would work. Not fix. It, no, it's called a time machine. <laughs> um, uh, barring that uh, development of that technology, um, there is no techno fix to this problem. We need to stop burning fossil fuels and get off carbon. Okay, um, oh, I'm on the air. All right, so we need a TARDIS and Doctor Who stat, okay? Um, so one more question we've got. I think we've only got time for one more question from the audience, unfortunately. Legal action against companies, media or governments for inaction and misinformation. Is this a possibility? Is this a direction that we could and should be taking? Well, um, sure. We have to use sort of every weapon in our arsenal because we uh, face a very powerful enemy in the world's largest and most powerful and wealthiest corporate, uh, uh, industry, the fossil fuel industry. Um, so uh, legal action is one of the means we have. Um, tort law, you know, uh, one of the things that's remarkable is the parallel between what the fossil fuel industry is doing right now and what the tobacco industry did decades ago. They're using the same playbook, which is to deny that their product is, in the case of tobacco, that their product was killing people, and in the case of the fossil fuel industry, that their product is killing the planet, um, which is arguably an even greater crime. 
and uh, the tobacco industry was ultimately held liable for lying to the public, for lying to their shareholders. Um, and uh, some of the same lawyers who were involved in that litigation decades ago have said that they see a very parallel case in what the fossil fuel industry is doing today. It depends on your legal system. I mean, people have probably followed the case in the Netherlands where there's been a really successful case. Unfortunately, their legal system is better than ours and the advice is it's actually much more difficult under the Australian constitution to do those things. I mean, I think that's, we have got to throw every weapon we can at that and this is obviously one of them. But, you know, the main weapon we've got is our power as a community to call it out, to say it like it is and demand change and change people in Canberra who don't do it. It is our collective power, it's the power we see here today, the people coming together and saying, we're gonna fight this out, that's our primary tool. Obviously, there are a lot more questions that I could ask, let alone all of you, um, but we're going to move on with the program. So I just want to say a big thank you to both of you for being so generous in turning up here, showing up, make love, not emissions. Let's get it trending. And uh, thank you very much. On to the next thank session. Thank you, Joe. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.